also like Whoa! So this is Radio Land, huh? The Infinite Turtle, the the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Roar! This is Death by EPD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is the perpetual love child of Richard Mazur and Lionel Doobie. It's Hank. I, I don't get a good name out of that. I guess I'd be Richard Doobie or Mazur. Richard Mazur Doobie would be. I would go after my, my father's name, Richard Mazur Doobie the second. That would be okay. Sure. That's I, I don't know how names work or where you get the numbers at or how things go. But good evening. I'm Hank. Uh, Richard Mazur jokes are never going to get old for me. I'm never going to get tired of this. You're already tired of it. You were tired of it when I first said it. Yeah. I've, uh, you know, the problem really is you said it and, oh, I don't look like him at all. And then I asked a couple people, oh, you do. You totally look like him. And there's no problem with it. He's a great actor, a really terrific guy, a very talented guy. But I just, I don't know. If, I'd rather look like Vincent Gallo or it something. Was, it was way more when you had the beard because you looked like Clark. From yeah. The thing. You put now, a hat on, you're Clark. Now I look like uh, any irresponsible 30-year-old in the 1980s. Tell me something. How long were you alone with that dog? You know, you told me one time that I looked like Magnum P.I. after a really long weekend if he let himself go. And that has gone to my head and really inflated my ego a little bit. And then you just became Jeff Skunk Baxter. So (laughs) a very talented bass player. Nonetheless, very talented musician. He wore a beret, Dick. I should get no respect. I have a captain's hat that I'm not wearing right now. Don't put it it on. Yeah, tonight's episode doesn't involve any uh, shenanigans or jokes or anything funny. And are we have nautical themed? Yeah, we we've been running this gimmick on the show that we discuss a a movie that both of us have seen to cut our runtime down from the nonsense for a little bit and then get us segueing into. The whole program, though, the rest of Death by DVD. But this week we realized we saw the same movie. So now we're just going to do a whole show talking about that movie. Yes, yeah, so we both see, saw the same movie and we have a good amount to talk about. We we would just run into the other show too much. So we're just going to do a, a short form jam piece, man. We're just going to jam. We're going to rap and see what happens. Yeah, we sat down to get episode two out of the way and start working on that. And we realized we just had a lot to say about Midsummer. And one thing that I, I've seen and uh, Alexander Nash has told me that people like is segments and hearing new stuff. So here, episode two, something brand new. It is uh, mid-July right now, and this movie came out July 3rd. So we're, we're on top of it. We're, we're staying on the game. Watch this episode be 25 minutes. Yeah. That's the shortest, shortest. Oh, I guess we don't have anything to say. I ran out of stuff to say. All right. And full warnings at the beginning. We're going full spoilers here. We're not going to do a time code where you can come in later when we're going to cut into spoilers. We're going to go full steam ahead into spoilers. We're not going to watch what we say. So if you haven't seen the movie and you give a shit, you don't listen to this episode until after you see it. But at the same time, 
like I said, have you? Did you see the trailer? Okay, well then you already know all the spoilers. So, well, to announce the shit officially tonight's topic matter, this episode's topic matter, because you might be listening to this at uh, six in the morning. It might not be tonight's episode for you, but I have a problem saying that we did this live for so long. It was tonight and always tonight's show, but I digress. That's not the point. Midsummer. It's this yeah. week's show. This week's show, we're discussing Midsummer, which just came out. We'll probably talk about Hereditary and, and mix up in between those things. But yeah, one spoilers really, for Hereditary as well. Well, <laughs> so at, there you go. At this point, Hereditary is available widely distributed. Uh, I think it's two ninety nine on Vudu and it's on Amazon if you have a Prime subscription, and you can get it at Walmart. I've seen it recently, so that's out of the way and fine. If you haven't seen Hereditary or Midsummer and you want to see them both, please go do now. I actually watched them both today, today, back to back, and really, really had a blast doing that. And Hereditary, uh, one of the best films of 2018. Uh, her- Probably my number two. Hereditary, I'm going to go and just say, is one of the best movies out there. I mean, I'd say last 20 years. It is a game changer and just articulate. It is a really articulate movie. Like, Mandy just edged it out because Mandy hit all my sweet spots. But Hereditary is right up there with Mandy, so it's probably in that number two spot just slightly. Well, I was thinking about this because we have a new segment we're going to unveil sometime soon called The Greatest Hits of Death by DVD. And I wanted to do Mandy on The Greatest Hits, and I really started to just kind of think about it's a great movie. Don't get me wrong. It's a really, really great movie, but I like it so much because of nostalgia and because of reasons that are – clouding my judgment and hereditary is just a, a much better movie it is it is better on all fields i don't think the two are, are greatly comparable and it's not so much a matter of the directors both are incredibly stylistic really talented individuals but hereditary just hereditary managed to get me to feel almost every emotion as to where mandy i felt i, I cried a little bit and then i well, the Wonder, big difference yeah. is like Hereditary is a movie. It is a studio movie with a beginning, middle and end. And Mandy is mostly nonsense. But I enjoy nonsense. I enjoy, yeah. I mean, it, it, that's not to degrade the film and say, well, it's just it's disposable trash. No, that's not what I mean. It's just it's not a point A, point B to point C storyline or plot. So. It's just it's working on a different level than Hereditary. So that's why they're a little bit hard to compare because Hereditary is probably the better overall movie as well, like by story wise and by filming wise. But Mandy hits just so many high points. It has way more high points than I think Hereditary does personally. I don't disagree, but the high points sometimes don't fulfill for me. And where we're getting into tonight is like, I think we're getting into like a not even a high point. It's almost like Midsummer's cons- consistently throughout its massive runtime is almost like a volleyball that's not quite gone over the net. Like it's just getting there and the net keeps stopping it. And it's not bad. It's just incredibly different pacing. And you are enchanted by it, though. Let's just get like, I'm going to start off before we get into all the hub, hubbub on this movie that hubbubaloo. the hubbubaloo, uh, that my rating for it would be a four out of five. So I enjoyed the film. I think it's above average, well above average. It's just not in that field of masterpiece. So it's a four out of five for me. For a massively produced Hollywood big picture in theaters all across the world, massive premiere, I'm going to give it stunningly the exact same. 
But when I right when the movie ended, I pulled out my phone and I sent you a message. I don't recall what I said, but I had like, really... five out of five, man. That's like one of the best movies of the year. I'm like, well, here's my problems. And then as I laid them out to you, kind of went, yeah, those kind of are a few issues with it. Well, it's funny. I didn't even get to read your response. I you know, went and took a leak, got to the car, got home, checked things. And all, all this while, it's been festering and moving on in my head. And I slowly started, you know, you, you see something that is above averagely shot. That really takes you in, especially when you watch shot on shittio constantly. Something that is artistically done really wows you and kind of clouds your judgment. And you have to. It's like coming home from a concert. You got to get past the wowing factor of what you just saw and then realize, like, man, they fucked up that song and got the lyrics wrong and the guitar player was too drunk. There's always something. And with Midsummer, it's not unfortunate, but there are some things. It has some issues. It has some pacing and tonal issues throughout it, which are very small things. But, I mean, you have to deduct points for those because you didn't just didn't reach that masterpiece level. And to get into just generally what the story is about. It's about a college age girl who is going through a period of grief in her life because her whole family dies in a murder suicide and her and her boyfriend. And this is general. We'll get into like more of the pathos behind these characters, but this is just the general idea. Um, her boyfriend and his friends go to a midsummer festival in Sweden um, to write some senior theses um, for their masters, stuff like that. And then what happens at this midsummer festival is what the uh, entirety of the plot is of just this ritual by what essentially is a cult. And with that story in mind, I think Ari Aster dropped the ball slightly. And this is my big complaint of the film that I'll just go ahead and lay out right now. I've seen the wicker man, You've seen The Wicker Man, both versions of it, and it's very similar to those. And for me personally, seeing a film that is generally kind of the same story and dealing with these kind of pagan ritual things, this needed to be pushed further than it was. Because I've seen The Wicker Man, I've seen how like the ending of that film and how kind of shocking it is, and this movie doesn't really try to elevate itself past what point that wicker man originally hit way back in the 70s so that's my big issue with it is just oh for a two hour and 20 minute movie it could have gone in some different places um not even different places it could have just maybe elaborated on yeah that's what was missing was just payoff for me and payoff could be with violence, with gore, or it could have just been maybe there was no need to make it as mysterious as it came off to be. Once you sort of got the general gist of what was going on, expounding on the idea and getting deep into, well, in the 8th century, we did this because of this rune and explaining everything is not necessary, but maybe just, I don't know, like you have, I can't remember the character's name. It's still all fresh to me, but the Oracle and you've got a really great character with the Oracle. Again, it looks like Ari just likes to use creepy kids. And this is to where Hereditary, the creepy kids, the point of the movie. You have such a great visual. It's never really used. It's so brief. And then you get a kind of a cool payoff shot uh, where the Oracle's sitting on the kind of clouded 
throne and it's got this weird like godlike imagery going yeah, on. Yeah, I didn't and, understand the the pillow cloud fucking throne thing that he was doing his finger painting on. I was like, what the fuck is this? I took it as like a representation of the pure innocence that this character again, like getting into spoilers, is a some sort of oracle that's been produced by years of inbreeding to keep it pure from uh, well, I understand a, that you connotation know. of it, but I mean I'm we're talking in a practical sense of like what is this practically that this cult has built for this deity or whatever that this Oracle that they, um, that they like subscribe to so heavily? Like what, what is that? What is this pillow thing he's sitting on? Well, I think, you know, that's maybe just wool or I guess you know, something. Yeah. Just weird. yeah. It's more of like an image shot that you know, it reminded me a little bit of Ken Russell, uh, especially with, the Oliver Reed movie, whose name the Devils. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. The Devils, and just how some of the stark imagery and very religious connotations are overplayed. And there is some weird mixtures of things here. Uh, for the most part, the movie deals with Norse mythology, or you know, going into Sweden, Norway, Scandinavian mythology. But there's a lot of references to the Christian Saint John. There's a weird. If you pay attention to the numerology in the movie, there's weird connotations with the number nine and ninety, which again can be. Well, I mean, what was the name of her boyfriend? That character. His Christian. Name is Christian, for Christ's sakes. I mean, an interesting. That's, that's fucking hitting you over the head, fucking hard. Yeah, Christian also wears when they get to uh, Sweden, they're at the Midsummer Festival. One of the the movies covered in all sorts of occult and uh, esoteric imagery, specifically runes. Uh, the, I think the Elder Firthquar, they make a notion to mention uh, at the beginning because there are two different types that appear. And if you read them correctly, it's almost like a spoiler throughout the movie and kind of fun. But Christian wears the God Tear as his rune throughout the movie, which character wise shows what's happening and who he is and everything has this really interesting representation and is is very deep if uh, watching hereditary again today you go back and there was so much i didn't really realize i didn't realize all the runes that were written on the wall or the triangles and the casting circles that were throughout uh the the miniatures that tony collette makes or just in the house in general and the amount of detail that airy puts into things is just he does his research yeah, he. it's not just like somebody checked out a Google article about Norse paganism or Norse mythology. He really went out of his way. And the, the detail is so immaculate. You actually you end up paying attention to that over some of these mistakes and you don't really look at some of the issues. Character development is a, is great, but some mm -hmm. of the characters just absolutely they are disappear. gone. Yeah, it's Bill like Poulter in the film disappears for a good section and he comes out and pisses on a tree. Out of nowhere, it's like, where the fuck have you been for 20 minutes? Not doing Sling Blade reunions because it's not the kid from Sling Blade. No, it's not, Hank. <laughs> uh, instantly, I I'm in the theater and I get excited. That's the kid from Sling Blade. Man, I can't believe he dropped that hick accent for this. Well, it's he that's didn't. He he dropped his British accent for this. Meanwhile, Hick Kid is in Fast and the Furious movies, still with that terrible Alabama accent. I live my life one quarter mile at a time. It's, oh, he's not terrible. Mm, um, a 
all not done that. No, uh, yeah, we totally we need to get that soundboard back to play <laughs> stuff when we get off track. But it's really interesting when you first get into the movie and you you start recognizing imagery right off the bat without a lot of knowledge of what's going on. And just watching the trailer, like you had said, really lets you know it's sort of a May Day celebration. It's similar to The Wicker Man. And at the very beginning of the movie, when you find out that one of the or the character's parents uh, and sister is dead, sitting next to all that, the beginning stuff of them before they even get to Sweden is uh, personally for me the best stuff in the movie. The way it's shot, the way it's acted, the different concepts we're dealing with as far as grief go and empathy because the whole movie is like that's the one word that you could sum up up with is empathy and that's what your main character has been looking for this entire time she just wants some empathy and everyone in her life just is completely vacant and won't give her any Uh, that character development is set up beyond accurate because what's frightening is it really is a social circle with friends it's just looking at one side of the situation and not the other Uh, when the the character's mother and father are shown to be dead the the May Queen hat the crown is actually sitting on the edge of the bed again showing you what's going to happen at the end of the movie that there's going to be change and what you just brought up is really interesting and what made the movie so heartwarming to me I think it's almost hysterical this is being billed as one of the most terrifying movies of all time as to where yeah sad I took such a a breath of fresh air out of it and a breath of happiness and by the time the movie had ended I, I just completely felt almost jealous that you're led into the beginning to feel very realistically that you're alone in this world and that no matter what, you're just kind of tagging along and that you're not going to fit in. And by the end of the movie, you're experiencing pain with other people. There is just a, a, a beautiful representation and thought of a whole community actually becoming a family and feeling pain for each other, whether good or bad, as a whole, as a an entity. And it, I just found it beautiful. I thought it was really pretty. Did you notice at the beginning, because this is most of what I was paying attention to because I'm a fucking dweeb, but how the background noise, the the room tone, it didn't have a lot of music going on. And when the phone rang, it was shocking. When she finds out her parents are dead, her wailing cries of grief are very heavy on the, the, the sound mix. It's turned up way loud. Where you real and it's this is not like fake Hollywood crying bullshit. This is along the lines of hereditary of actual grief of where you're just like sucking in air and sobbing and unable to control yourself. This isn't that fake crying bullshit you see in movies. This is straight up <laughs> where you can't even breathe. And it's just it's so harrowing to listen to as he slowly kind of pushes the camera over the couch and into the snowy background to where we get these super kind of vague title cards and stuff. I don't know. It's very beautiful. Very beautiful shot. Yeah, very reminiscent of his work with Hereditary, the scene where Tony Collette finally discovers that her daughter Charlie has been killed Pretty much. I don't know a better word to say. It's not a Real murder. Grief crying. Yeah, it was just it's such a heartaching scene that even without having lost somebody in a vicious manner, you can't help but kind of tear up and feel choked watching her go through these throws. Uh, Sean Penn in Mystic River did something similar where he the same scene where he finds out his daughter's dead and just loses his shit and is trying to get through the police crowd and they're holding him back. And it's just one of those things where the actor really, you can see is suffering and really this isn't some like William Friedkin firing a gun to get a reaction out of people. You're really seeing an actor do their damn job. And 
Uh, it's just something about Ari's style that he's able to capture these things. And he's very fond of quick cuts. You'll get these very deep grieving scenes and you'll get the emotion and the screaming, but it won't be everlasting. It doesn't run for three minutes. You get a very quick point. And with Midsummer, like at the beginning of the movie, the character development is just showing these quick flashes of them at characters interacting with each other, allowing you instantly to profile and, and see who they are without giving you a deeper backstory. And what works is it's almost like a road trip movie. You need the geek, the funny guy, the charming guy. You have all of the stereotypical Breakfast Club characters, but they've been wrapped up and changed nicely into uh, it'll be dated in three years. One guy's a, a loudmouth vapor, but it fits so well right now that it's like your friends. You can place yourself into this group going to midsummer. And like at the beginning with all the grief and with all the uh, the pain stuff at the it's all shot very dark uh, during the winter, very morose. And then once we find out we're going to Sweden, all of a sudden Ari Aster turns the fucking brights on and now it's bright, sunny. Well, it's only mentioned once, but it's during permanent sunlight that Sweden has that time of the year where the sun stays up for three or four days in a row and then goes down for three or four hours. So changing the complete color scheme and palette almost shocks you and readjusts you to again, experiencing this with the characters and going into this new territory. And what really that when you first get to Sweden, uh, you have this really, really awesome shot, which is again, something he did in hereditary where the camera completely goes upside down. And it's like you are breaking the fourth wall and actually becoming part of the movie now once it readjusts. And when it readjusts is when that palette change really kicks in. And like in the theater I was in, it was a terrible experience. There was this couple and three or four rows ahead of us who were just like just talking, just a regular room tone talking in between scenes where there was no dialogue. So while we're getting to Sweden, while the director's building what's going on tone through the film. They're just discussing things. They're just talking about shit. It's like, do you not understand that the whole point of no dialogue and kind of droney music at this scene is it's building a mood and you are wrecking every fucking second of this mood that you're not going to enjoy the film for what it is because you keep your, all you care about is what characters have to say and what you can see visually. And that's not, what makes up a film it's all of its components and when you are just dismissing this component you are dismissing a large portion of the film because it's about creating a certain tone for the overall thing a mood that you're getting ready to be immersed in and then we get to sweden and the mood changes like they the people in the audience were like laughing at all the uh hallucinogen scenes like oh uh, she's pretty fucked up and she, oh shut the fuck up and I will say this. This is the most accurate to life version of someone taking psychedelics I've ever seen in a film. Everything is just slightly wavy. Like, yeah, you, you get characters. Everything's just slightly wavy. Your eyes aren't focusing correctly on things. Just it was it's beautifully done. For psychedelic footage. You you get this really bad representation of psychedelics in film in general. And to one extent, yeah, it's to make it look really provocative and to work for the story. But when you have somebody that might have experienced or used them before, 
it's almost off-putting because it takes the reality away from the film. And in this case, like they're they're doing mushrooms, they're drinking mushroom tea, but it's just uh, it's enough to be off. Feels like a mushroom high. That's what yeah. we're witnessing on the screen. That's exactly what a mushroom high feels like or looks like while you're high on mushrooms. Yeah, you really get the peaking sensation, and what works is putting something like that in the movie is almost like a gun rule. If you're going to show a gun, you have to use a gun. They put drugs into the movie, and it allows you to... At first, it gives you this feeling that, okay, some crazy stuff is going to happen to these characters because they're on drugs, and it progressively gets more and more normal, and this is where some of the issues start popping up, is the normality isn't banality at all, it just... People can't just disappear. You can't establish a character and then they just disappear. That's not how it works. Well, I mean, this is where we get into as what I view as the problems of the film. And much like the Eli Roth film Green Inferno, there is a scene in this where, I mean, we get through some weird cult stuff. And we have this very long, um, and it's moody and it works. It's building um, a sense of tension of this dinner scene of these old people who are kind of seeing over the entire thing. And then we get to the glimming suicide scene, as I call it. All of this stuff is painted out almost like before every scene happens. ceremonial. Very ceremonial. The entire time. We don't break ceremony. It like goes through the entire ceremony. Well, even all of that, the ceremony, everything is is brought up a scene beforehand, always in this movie, somehow in representation, either in the background, set design, costuming, the runes they're wearing. It, instantly, once you get to Sweden, despite it being somewhat pleasant and almost just see it, it looks like a, a, just a religious ceremony. Nothing crazy is happening that the what the rune that she was wearing was the rune that they gave the lead character in the film. She had two, didn't she? She, but one of them was the it was grief, basically. And then so, over or change happening, grief and change, and overcoming yeah. change. And that's what she like. That's what the cult has determined in her. They feel it emanating from within her. So they're already on to her. But they also have a a fucking double agent basically is one of the friends he's from this cult but he it's not like a horrible thing to him this is all natural to him so he's thinking all of this stuff is wonderful he doesn't see well, any problems with it that's an interesting point to bring up because when i finished the movie i didn't really feel that there was anything wrong with it and you know for lack of better word we call them a cult but uh, they're fucking happy. They're happy, and it's not like Waco. They're not molesting people or sacrificing them to Satan. It's an agreement, and the the Swedish character possibly has had a lot more to do with things than it is obvious, I think, because you find out— but I don't think he's being th- that disingenuous in the film. No, yeah, I don't think it's like— I don't think he's, he's like trying to hide that much from them. He is a little bit, but really it's like, no, this is this is what we do. Well, he's told them about what's going on, and obviously toward the end of the movie you realize that every 90 years they take nine sacrifices for their crop, and two people that have gone out in the world brought back the right numbers. But before they leave for Sweden, the Swedish character sits down with the grieving character, Danny, who she's when she goes to lose her sister— she sent an email that's very erratic, and you find out very quickly through a discourse conversation with her boyfriend, Christian, that her sister is bipolar and does this for attention. Her sister ends up killing herself and her parents, 
And while this is happening, the boyfriend is sitting down with his Swedish friend and all his other pals plotting on how he's going to dump her. So he obviously is stuck with her after this, doesn't break up with her and is unhappy with it. None of the male characters seem to really like her. And it's just that uh, that situation happens in life constantly where you instantly don't like somebody because of another group of people, whatever. But this character takes time to explain to her, I have felt your grief and I can help. And he says that, and you've heard that, everyone's heard that when you're in a tough time. I know where you're at. I can help. And you in the movie and the character brushes it off and gets upset over it. And that is very prevalent and continues to come throughout the entire movie. I can help. And you finally are given an understanding that help is grieving, that we can give you a system to grieve. And in total, what it's the scary, big, evil cult, but who are the evil people? Who's the scary, disrespectful, nasty people? Same with Cannibal Holocaust. Who's well, the who real cannibals? Who lack the empathy that she's looking for? That's the real question, because all of her friends, all the like her boyfriend, they all just want to ditch her and have a good time and forget about the things she's been through while this cult is like, no, come in. We are your family. We love you, and we will feel your pain with you. That's all she's looking for is empathy, and the Swedish friend is like the only person in that group who has been, I understand, the only one who's like actually trying to help her in some way, and everybody else is just kind of a cock. Well, when you get to Sweden, you're given a a fairly eloquent and quaint uh, explanation of human life, that these people see life as seasons, and through your early life, you live and you can go out into the world and do whatever you want to. And then you turn a certain age and you work and then you turn a certain age and you go back to the earth, essentially, and you 72. die. Yeah, at 72, 72, you become a part of being reborn and helping the next it's generation. 18 years, I think, because when you turn 18, you hit a peak. And then when you turn 36, you hit another peak and, and on with the seasons. Like, I think it's like every 18 years. And so you are meeting our our lead characters are all in their mid-20s or so when your first season of life is changing. Again, something that is a constant theme throughout the entire movie is changing and and you changing or not. And it's one of those things that if you're not going to be progressive and move forward with your life or emotions or thoughts, then you get stuck. And being stuck sometimes means you get your face cut off. But also if you pee on trees, you know, like there's a lot of rules to this. There's a lot of stuff going on. Well, and like getting back to the the first major scene in the film, um, which is the suicide of the 72 year old people and they jump off a cliff and there's some very visceral Fulci style um, head cracking scenes in it. And it's very shocking and it's not shocking just because it's violent. It's I mean, head trauma is always shocking, especially when it's done well, like in this film. And that's where the Eli Roth comes in for, for me for this film, because it shot its wad really early with this scene and the violence is pretty tame from then on. And for me personally, you have to build these things to somewhat of a crescendo and they do through other means, but the violence is just, it's gone. Like my problem with the idea is, like I said before, I've seen the wicker man. So when people start disappearing in this film, it's being very mysterious about it. Like, Oh no, we took them to the to to the train. They're on the train now, so you don't have to worry about them anymore. It's like okay, this is Wicker Man. They're obviously lying. I came into this film knowing that this cult is going to be, fucked, suddenly... up and be fucked up things. Let's like see a bit of it. I'm not saying you have to be super graphic, but you have to like do something slightly shocking and people just disappear and it's like I 
who cares? I well, need to like need something more visceral after that very visceral suicide scene. It suddenly goes into almost a seventies jello pacing with this detective story of well, did he really leave? Is are they going to the train? What's going on? And you and we you already sh- know the answer. Yeah, that's why I fucks me up. With this big uh, unveiling of violence and when it happens, I think it's really evident, obvious with, again, the prior scene explaining what happens and the aging. And at 72, life ends. And then you have two older people sitting at the start of the table. The table itself is a rune that expresses change and life changing. The scene's nature of being graphic, again, takes me back to hereditary because you get that one really violent display with – getting killed and then it just kind of it doesn't pace out but it just goes into a very different it dark territory around a little bit but in hereditary you have the grief and the pain to kind of keep you through it and kind of keep the 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 mood very morose and in this film we just kind of like well things are kind of weird now and the the people are like out for themselves the americans are out for themselves trying to write their master thesis over this and she's just kind of gen- generally depressed as she has been but there's no real mood because i think he's what he's trying to do is keep it very light and noted by the palette he used because once you hit sweden it's fucking bright daylight for the rest of the film and it's hard it's hard to make something a horror film and use all that very bright light they succeeded with the suicide scene but then post that it's just becomes kind of like more festival activities and i'm just like i'm not as interested in that i want i want something to be a little bit more shocking we explain the cult a little bit more here we uh, this character wants to know what's going on just weird things going on but i already know where we're going with this so if we're going to go this direction with it you need to build this up more you need to do something to bring me out of what I already expected to go. And like I said, with the trailer, it's like you if you can arrange those scenes in your head in the trailer, you can kind of figure out where the movie's going. You miss like that major suicide scene. That's the one thing you don't really see in the trailer. But other than that, it's like it's a lot of that. It's a lot of people in bright daylight and stuff. <laughs> I mean, I think. That- a lot of your emotion and your grieving that you're supposed to keep contact with throughout the experience of watching this relies on the impact of the suicide and murder scene. And it's not like you see the suicide or murder. You're presented with how it happened, and it's very dismal and an upsetting scene. And that should carry on as with Hereditary, but it's just done reverse. You're given the pow at the beginning, and by the mid part of the movie, you're kind of not running on that steam anymore, that you've got this character i don't know tangle that you've got two characters that are three characters that go missing and then two that become backstabbing and turning on each other and you think that all of these are going to go into different places or you're going to get an additional plot out of it and none of it they come all back together and what the problem is is when they come together and it's unveiled like well this character his face was cut off well, why are you going to show me that if you're not going to show me anything about that? We're given one of the most iconic and well-studied and well-talked-about Viking punishments of all time, the Blood Eagle, where your lungs are removed from behind and your spinal cord and your rib cage is broken backward and your lungs are pulled from the back while you're still breathing. They show us the after effects of this enough to show us the character still has inflating and, and deflating lungs, but like two hours and 10 minutes into the movie too. It's, yeah. it's not even like you get it like, you know, an hour 45 and we're building into this. It's just like everything is just kind of laid out for you at the end. We do have that scene in the, 
where they keep the holy books of um, the dude seeing his friend, who, who he thinks is his friend, with uh, his skin face stretched over his face. And we get some dick, which I'm always excited for in a horror film because it, due to the way society is structured currently, especially American society, nudity, especially male nudity, is such, it can be used almost shockingly in this film. It's just like, okay, he's just hanging fucking brain and he's wearing a human face. So that in itself can be a bit shocking. And we don't even have to particularly see the violence. I don't need to see you skin him, but can we see where you take him to whatever the abattoir that you're going to cut him up in and have some like weird cult shit going on? Like make well, like really push it. That's what I mean with the blood Eagle that you're going to go ahead and show us the after effects and give us this, you know, awesome display of grotesque what violence ceremony that led to that. That's what I want. Or at least even some weird audio of bones cracking or gasping or something that would allow us to experience what's going on and some of the atrocities that are being committed outside of just the sunshine and rainbows of yeah, they're they're a really loving cult though. Somebody probably cried for him while it happened. Like I get it, I understand that, but a little bit of payoff. Um, one thing that again is interesting is you brought up the skinning scene and the guy just you know fully displaying cockamongo. Right before that, Danny asks while everyone's playing happily in a field, hey, what game are they playing? And someone snarkily says, skin the fool. So these things are all displayed almost like a, a, a rim shot joke to you that you they skin the fool. Then the next scene, the vaping douchebag, he's gotten skinned. It plays off and pays off, but it's just not the way that. I think conventionally you want your payoff. And again, like you just said, it's not that I wanted a great deal of gore or brutality, just something to line something it, maybe at it, frame something it. Like literally, like I said, just like show me a scene where they take him to like some weird, very artistically set up, fucked up cult scene of people wearing masks and all that. I don't give a shit. It doesn't have to like show a lot of blade entering flesh. That's not my point. My point is I already know where the cult thing is going. So let's just get to some of this cult stuff. And it never really does until the end. And by that time it's like, yeah, I know. I mean, I expect there are this cheeky where pieces. it was going. There are some cheeky things that were thrown in, though, that at one point the character Christian runs outside naked from a hut and he sees sticking from a garden somebody's leg where they've planted it for crop, better blessings of crops. So like that, it, something like that, maybe 40 minutes beforehand to just yes. show in a scene, somebody walking past this lovely garden and in the background, the camera pick up the leg or something to just establish that this character hasn't completely gone missing would have been a little bit nicer for me, but it doesn't take away from anything. I still have no real complaints. No, I mean, we, I understand your characters can't know what's going on, but your audience already does. So let us in on some of the, the background action that's going on here, because that's what we're here for. Well, we're you not here rely. to be shocked by an M. Night Shyamalan style ending of like, yeah, this is the ultimate end of this. I knew that two hours ago. Well, you know, relying on the idea that this was fresh, original, you know, he came up with this idea. I read something that the production company had proposed an idea where people get lost in Sweden and Ari came up with the following. It's hard for me to, to think that there was no influence from the Wicker Man. It, it's got to be there. The ending of the movie is directly. I wouldn't say specifically the Wicker Man, but when you're dealing with this pagan stuff and you're dealing with. um Nordic culture this way, you're going to have some spillover. 
and that's what you have with the, the wicker man and all that stuff. You have spillover, like you have the guy inside the bear skin, even in this film, like you did in the remake of the wicker man with Nicolas Cage. Yeah. So. And that was heavily relying on actual pagan texts and pagan imagery. But at the same time, I mean, it, you can't say that there's not a similarity between the two. And that's where the disappointment I think really comes in that the remake of the wicker man is not that great. And I'll say that midsummer is better than the original wicker man. I, I think it's a much better movie, but oh, I yeah. still am just left with, uh, it's not that I need more. I I'm left wanting more and I don't feel I should walk out of a theater that way, wanting anything else. Well, if you go to Hereditary, it's just so balanced, and you have that through line of the miniatures. You just have all these little bitty details that stack up to be this really terrific film with a really kind of, I wouldn't even call it a shocking ending, but just a very payoff ending. Um, and this film just kind of meanders a lot. It just kind of, it's almost, I think like you were saying that you got really, like hooked on all the runes and all the actual things you know about Nordic culture. And I think that's kind of the same thing for Ari is that he just kind of got really immersed in that. And I don't find any of that, that particularly interesting personally. And it's almost like a lot of it is like a history lesson to me. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I mean, I'm here to see kind of a horror film. I don't care about real pagan rituals and if you're doing them correctly or not, it's that's not what my concern is. My concern is, entertainment i think those things could be uh, used adequately and even if it was sort of a history lesson used for the benefit of the movie but in the case of midsummer most of this ancient stuff and all the imagery is used specifically for set design it's all background stuff it's all things that you're being immersed with visually and you know there's a scene where a character enters a room and each piece of the room is a tiny porcelain tile that's been hand painted and there's hundreds of them and they're all completely individual so you end up losing track of the scene following what's being displayed in front of you and it's artistic points that are being tossed in to help push the story forward but you could have taken those same things and instead of decorating the walls with them put them into the plot and maybe widened or broadened the spectrum a little bit something like that it's just this is it ends up being a very kind of old school almost like something my mother could watch and i and like she would never watch anything like this but you know what i mean it, it feels like a like a weird british bbc tv movie that has a couple of super violent scenes in it it doesn't have a horror feel. It doesn't have this terrifying summer. This is the scariest thing you've ever seen movie to me that it's almost uh, it's it like feels how I think like you can almost eliminate the horror elements completely and still almost have the same movie. Well, even as it is, I, do, I just don't see a lot of the horror elements. I take it like I kind of described a racer head the other night of just a very positive story about growth and changing and love and happiness and loss and and. I don't know. I, it's weird reading other people's reviews and looking at the buzz on this that one people find it. I don't get it. I don't know what it's about. It's confusing. I don't get yeah. it. Yeah, I don't understand those. And then other people's just, well, it's a cult. It's evil. I can't believe that the, the evil wins. They're letting evil. Nobody. What? Just because it's no, not. It's, it's a very darkly happy ending is what's kind of fucked up about it, because she gets her empathy once she finds her boyfriend having sex with the what have 17 i think the character is supposed to be one of the girls in the cult because he's been kind of drugged into taking part in this ritual well, they even impregnating her 
joke about it at the beginning of the movie, all the friends sitting around the table. Why don't you break up with her and impregnate a hot Swedish girl? Done. It's opening dialogue. It's just all this a, a massive amount of like Francis Ford Coppola style foreshadowing, just like how, <laughs> you know, just very prominent in your face. Hey, look, this is going to I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen in the next scene and you're not going to believe it. And then he does it. He just smacks <laughs> you in the face with it. And I love it. It's really clever. But once that scene is finished and she sees him and then her whole life's falling apart again, she's already the, the May Queen at this point, And she just goes back into her grief cries, her very prominent, loud, I, uh, guttural cries. And all of the, the, the maids around her, whatever you call them, all the other uh, people who are competing for the May Queen have become almost like her court. And they're grieving with her. They are screaming and crying with her and like almost... Um, kind of repeating her actions and she finally is getting that empathy she always wanted. They're all grieving with her fully. Well, she has shown emotion and has been working with them and cooking with them and partaking in their, their culture and their life. So they feel for her. And that's what the human race, not politics, not your country, humans in general, the whole point of, of us, this is perfection. These people work together, they live together, they're happy, and they all feel as a unit. They understand her pain. And I actually fucking teared up just sitting there because it, it's this wailing and this just nonstop screaming and it's piercing your ears and it's vibrating you to the core sitting in the theater. And then each other character in this room, 20 other girls start baying and howling with her until it's this controlled mantra of pain and they get it in and they get it out. And it's just, it's stunning to see somebody choreograph and get something set up so articulately that you as an audience member, you almost want to start screaming just to get it out. It, it's such a mesmerizing thing. And then it, 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 it manages, you get it right at the end of the movie. You only get this one in the last 35 minutes of the film and they hit you with the same thing three times in a row. And by the last effect of everyone wailing and feeling this group community sorrow. And the last time they did, it was the, the crusher for me one of their own community becomes a sacrifice for the betterment and is burned alive. And the drug they've given him to not feel didn't work. And he begins screaming. So the community begins to scream because that's their brother and that's their family. And it's just the concept of this group. Whoa, this collective. Whoa, uh, being better for everyone. It's just, it's so great. It's so pretty. It's just and then so pretty. Ultimately, to at the end, she has to make the choice as the May Queen of who are going to sacrifice this man from the village or her boyfriend. She chooses her boyfriend and she gets and he gets what he wanted. They break up. It just happens to be he needs to be burned alive for them to break up. And she's like she's tearing up with all the screams and the cries and she's covered in flowers, which is kind of a goofy sort of outfit they put her in, but whatever. I mean, it's just like a small, very Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, it was a little bit goofy for me, but she like just gives it a smile because she's finally happy. She has a group with her that feels pain with her, wants her, loves her. And that toxic relationship she had with that man who didn't particularly care for her is over now. And they're broken up. Well, he's just dead. 
obviously was, you know, codependency. And she brings that up at the beginning of the movie. Do I dump on him too much? Do I include him too much? Do I make him feel a certain way? And his character doesn't have the same thought process of, is she going through too much? Or there's no middle ground for any of these people. And everyone's been there. But have you ever gone through a bad breakup and gotten a bunch of your ex's stuff at the house and thrown it away or burned it and just felt better? That's the end of the movie. It's taking the box of shit taking it outside and burning it. All your ex's all his stuff. friends. <laughs> yeah, it's all the, the T-shirts, the old letters, movies, whatever was left behind. Perfume doesn't matter that you just take it outside and you burn it and you move on with it. That was it's a breakup. This it's was a breakup movie. Yeah, it's what it, it was described as. And it's the ultimate breakup movie. It just it happens to be super dark. But it's so progressive because if you take away just the, the love aspect and growing apart from somebody that you were romantically involved with just that idea of these people coming together for each other and feeling pain and feeling suffering and feeling woe and everyone's ailment working to be a better person with other people. I just don't all horror is stripped aside because I watched the movie and it's like, yeah, fuck, we should be that. I want to join. I'll jump off a rocket 72. I don't give a fuck. Sounds great. And I think like, just to better illustrate my point with just the pace of the film and how it goes. And when, when we keep talking about it, it needs something shocking or something to kind of wake you up progressively throughout the film. The best thing, and I don't know why this title keeps coming to my head that I can compare it to, is The Void. Because in The Void, the movie just continuously builds and builds and builds and builds into this transcendent moment at the end. And that's, I think, what I was kind of missing for Midsummer was how each step along the way in the void becomes darker and darker and darker. And this movie seems to be that needs to be the same basic pattern, but they don't follow it. We kind of dip off into some more just kind of summer festival kind of things that I'm just like, this just seems oddly paced to me. It just seems like it's dragging its feet here, here and here. Throughout the whole movie, you kind of get this feeling, all right, well, they're finally going to get to like the, the celebration day, though. They're going to get there and they're going to do some sacrifices and all the satanic shit's going to come out and John Travolta's face is going to melt and Ernest Borgnine's going to be there. It's going to be great. And then they finally get to the May Day Festival and it's like a, a literal. Yeah, it's it's a literal May Day Festival. They, there's nothing sketchy or bizarre but at the same time you know characters have disappeared you already have been introduced to the weird oracle character you've already seen another man wearing another man's face but you're still getting this they're all right they're good people now swallow the fish whole and have a good time drink some mushroom tea and you just need an in-between you can't constantly have this happy good vibe while somebody's wearing somebody else's face you gotta give me a little bit of a chill there do you understand what I mean, though, by the void, how the void is paced? And like kind of the comparison I'm trying to make where it has is that film just kind of progressively gets weirder and the creatures get more kind of scary looking and it just and then builds to like a weird religious ceremony and all that. That's what I was kind of missing from this was it just the build just wasn't right. Like kind of in Green Inferno, where you have the dismemberment scene at the when they first get to the village and then all the other deaths are like subpar compared to that. It's like, well, you shot your wad too early. Like, like I was saying about green Inferno, like is Eli Roth never seen a, a cannibal film? Cause these things have like a pace that they hit. You slowly build to the grand crescendo of what your ultimate violent act is going to be. 
and this one has the ultimate violent act and then a bunch of mid-range bullshit for the rest of the movie. So you just if you shoot your wad too early like that, like they do in Midsummer with the suicide, then it just kind of throws the whole pace of the, the thing off. It's like it keeps starting and stopping and starting and stopping. See, I feel that the pacing was almost placed that way to show you the normality of their society, that this isn't an everyday thing, that we're not killing people and jumping off cliffs and cracking their heads every single day. We're a very normal culture, and this is it. This is our big shock, so it's your big shock. Yeah, and I guess for me as a horror fan, like it's tending to lean more towards the drama end of horror and I like exploitation. I want a little bit more of the exploitation side of horror with this, too. But again, I still say it's a four out of five. I did like the movie overall. It's just I thought like compared to Hereditary, though, it's just like because the one thing I was looking out for is Ari Aster going to have his sophomore slump because that's what everybody waits for when you have a, a large um, first film, and I don't think he really had it. He had a, a small slump, but not major at all. Just a just a little bit. And um, apparently, the guy who made The Witch was it Robert Eggers. He's yeah. got a movie coming out called The Lighthouse, I think, or something. It's got Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. It's shot in thirty five millimeter black and white and a one uh, eight nine ratio. So and apparently it's one of the best movies of the year. So apparently he's not going to have a sophomore slump either. I don't know about this Willem Dafoe weird lighthouse keeper movie, but I'm interested. I'm interested in a black and white 35 millimeter movie shot like it was in a square. Uh, Certainly like bringing up the sophomore slump and dropping out of sight, like guys like Jeremy Solnier kind of did when it came around to blue ruin and then moving into green room, they disappeared for a little while. I think what uh, going back beforehand, you were mentioning was the pacing problem between the movie uh, comparing it with hereditary. One thing that kept you going is there wasn't, I wouldn't say a consistent level of violence or graphic violence with builds and tone throughout the film. Yeah, and you still are given a lot of payoffs, like the Gabriel Byrne burning scene is just astounding. It's shocking. Yeah, it, it no matter what is a breathtaking sequence, and then following that, it's just a cavalcade of insanity toward the end of the movie. It gets very psychotronic, it very it's very operatic and gets to the very high notes. And midsummer I expected you know, all right, well, we've got the suicide, so this is sort of similar to Charlie getting killed, and we're going to move on and we're going to get another display of something later on, maybe some really cool imagery. And you get it. You get it with the face scene. You get it with the display of the oracle. You get it with the blood eagle, but it's just not as powerful, and it's lacking. And a lot of it does have to do with the palette and it being so light and pleasant as to where the scene where, like the Gabriel Byrne burning scene in Hereditary, it's what a good five six minutes of them uh starting upstairs arguing and then slowly walking backward all the way into the living room until it finally turns into this quiet you need help not a fight not an angry scene but somebody actually showing concern and then blows up in your face just insanely i mean it's just a beautiful display of power of just uh, being a powerful director and it has nothing to do with gore. It's just a fire, like a fire stunt. It's a guy lit on fire. I've seen it a thousand times in movies, but the way that they built to that scene is what's important. And the way um, you have your music set at that scene is important. And that's what makes it shocking in that film. And I think Midsummer had a few of those, but it's just 
they were few and far between for me personally. Hereditary is a much more clever movie than Midsummer, and yeah. it's set up much better. I mean, you're getting subtle hints throughout the movie, like Charlie's allergy during the uh, grandmother's funeral. There better not be peanuts in that. Oh, are there peanuts in that? I don't have the EpiPen. They bring it up. It's allowed you to understand things, even with the infamous when the character does that at the end of the movie, you get the body hopping instantly. You understand what's going on. Everything's painted and nicely done for you. There's just small puzzle pieces that click and make things mix together. And massively, Midsummer was missing those. Yeah, it, it just was missing a few things. But again, we both really enjoyed the movie overall. Um, as of right now, my of the year list. And it's a biased list, it, like because it, it's not going to have a lot of summer blockbusters and shit on that that people tend to like. Most of my top five films end up being horror films, but right now my list is number one is The Perfection, number two is Us, and number three is Midsummer. Yeah, I've not seen Us. I've not seen any of Jordan Peele's really movies good. yet. Yeah, I really need to get on the stick with that, but I've been busy in the 80s and 70s I, I really i know i bring it up a lot but i'm a big vinegar syndrome fan and i have been just going through their catalog and getting everything that isn't porn pretty much and just really frying my brain with it but i i'm gonna i like the perfection that's a whole nother show because we got into that the other night and it <laughs> really became a, a downhill ramble from there another but, argument yeah, Midsummer is it's not perfect, but I think it's going to be hard for me to see something that I enjoy this much for the rest of the year already with what's been released and what we know is going to come out. There was just something so pleasant and something so happy about walking out of a theater, understanding and, and wanting that connection. I just found so much warmth in this movie and I found it to be I, I went into this without reading reviews. I didn't want to hear what anybody else had to say about it. I went into it with knowledge of the trailer and came out and not disappointed by no means. Of course, there is always something more that we want, but I came out happy. And that to me really sticks because I'm never happy. I don't like anything. I came out pissed, but that was just because of the people in front of me. I was so pissed. You kind of shit on that movie for me. And another reason at this point in my life where I just have almost zero interest in going to the theater. My TV is fucking huge. It takes about three months for things to come out on at least a digital download or something like that. So fuck it. I'm tired of going to the theater. It's just a miserable fucking experience at this point. And what really sucks is movies like Midsummer and a lot of cases and Hereditary are made to be experienced in a theater that a lot of home TVs, most people's setups aren't going to be able to pick up what you're supposed to pick up audio wise or visual wise and how things like A Quiet Place, for example, watching that movie at home, unless you have a giant speaker system and surround sound sucks. Watching David Lynch movies at home sucks. Sometimes directors put so much into sound quality that with two speakers, you're fucked. Hereditary is a movie that's really hard to watch at home. I was watching it on a smaller TV earlier today, and constantly, any background noise, I'm missing things. And there's so much stuff. And just talking about Hereditary for a minute, uh, editing-wise. Oh, yeah. Hell payment, definitely. Hell payment. Eighth King of Hell is always my king and will always be my king. But sound and visually, that movie is edited just 
to die it's for. Like a motherfucker, dude. I mean, it's nothing is wasted in that movie. Nothing. It's like, nothing's extra and nothing is fucking wasted. And what's crazy. Inc- and what's incredible, though, is like certain things like framing where he's taking complete disregard to how you should frame something and have it set completely in the far right corner because there's something very minuscule in the very left corner that you might want to pay attention to. And it's just articulate and beautiful. It reminds me of Ramiro's work on Martin, just how quick it is. In some cases, you're, you're given just such a brief shot of insanity in some cases. Tony Collette's death is one of the most bizarre impossible, insane things I've ever seen in a movie, and you only get a few (laughs) seconds of it. But what really, really makes that death so fantastic is after he jumps out of the window and he's hit the ground, it's a good 30 seconds until the sawing ends and you hear the thump. That it just is him laying there while that hacking sawing continues, and then it hits you when you hear the thump. Did that person just saw their own head off while hanging? What? Insanity. Floating, not even it's- hanging, floating. Um, and that's like, for me, at the end of Hereditary, probably the most disturbing scene to me. I mean, the, the little girl's death is pretty disturbing in itself. And it's not the actual initial impact. It's the day later shot of the head covered in ants. That's the disturbing part. But when uh, Tony Collette's body is just floating around near the treehouse and it go, like floats up the the ladder to the treehouse, like with no head. I don't know what it is about like the way they did that. That just is just haunting the way the body is kind of limp and just the way it's just, it's creepy as fuck. One of the things that really bothers me is just consistently seeing now with midsummer and with hereditary and the witch is a big one that's tossed into this list. I don't get it. I just what is there get, not to get? I didn't understand hereditary. I, how? How? And it's I explained very easily throughout the whole film. Well, I don't mean to be insulting to the general audience, but I feel if you have a competency above high school level, this should be fairly evident what's going on to you. And, Put and, your fucking phone down and watch the goddamn movie. Well, is the house haunted? Because they were seeing ghosts beforehand. No, you dense prick. It has nothing to do with that. It's the fucking grandmother. They tell it. God it's damn it. It's a cult. Don't make me paint it out to you. Hereditary is a cult. Midsummer is uh, a happy self-help group. <laughs> well, I mean, it's they're in hereditary. They're literally raising a demon. It's the town is full of a bunch of weird, creepy old people who are in the cult well, of payment. They're fucking necromancers. First and foremost, they bring back the grandmother after beheading her. Uh, Tony Collette is obviously brought back after beheading herself. I mean, they're dealing with some incredible black magic, lesser key of Solomon stuff. Payment is uh, and what I really appreciate is all of it's real. It's not we better make this fake because some dumb movie audience member might think it's real. No, they just gave you some true lesser key of Solomon shit and let you deal with it. Yeah, and it's just it's a really well made movie. It's so tonally consistent the entire time. And I think. Part of the problem with Midsummer is you're automatically there's nothing you can do about it. You're automatically going to compare it to Hereditary, and it's just it's it's the same thing with um, Jeremy Saunier and Green Room. You're immediately going to compare the um, Hold On the Dark movie with Green Room. It's just like oh, it's not. I'm not getting the same 
I'm making the same feelings as I did with Green Room. And is this a bad movie? Well, I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just it's not what I enjoyed before. But it's still a competent, well-made film that you can enjoy on a different level. And I think that's part of the problem with Summer as well. Hereditary is just so finely tuned. And Midsummer seems a little bit more loose, like you kind of got away from you in a few points. And a lot of that, I like I am a firm believer in outside opinions, especially when like you don't have to have the like the listen expressly to the studio, but you need to listen to criticism as in this movie is a little long. Two hours and 20 minutes for Midsummer. It blows by pretty quick, but it's still. It's a little long. And the same thing with like um, Quentin Tarantino and Kill Bill 1 and 2. If he wasn't Quentin Tarantino, if he was just a regular schmo director, no one would ever allow you to make a four-hour kung fu movie and cut it into two parts. You would have to take your footage and edit it down to one competent movie, which you can do with Kill Bill. There's so much extra bullshit in that is unnecessary. All you that anime. a two-hour movie about Kill, out of Kill Bill. Easy. Why did no other character get an anime? Why did just Lucy Liu get an animated sequence? I, I okay, because I mean, I would have actually probably enjoyed it and not thought it was faffy bullshit if everyone had gotten their own animated sequence. That could have been, yeah, at least give me some cool stuff with Michael Madsen and a sword. I don't know uh, anything. Yeah, I mean, you don't if you don't want to use the form of anime, you could use something else. You could use you don't even have to make it have a cartoon, do a different style, like a different like a 70s movie style or something like that or 60s movie style for Michael Madsen's backstory. But you gave one character a major backstory. You have a lot of Uma Thurman working with a master that can be cut. You like. There's just things that do not belong in those that those two films. Well, like Uma Thurman. But he's Quentin Tarantino, so no one's going to tell him what to do. Well, like Uma and the Master, again, something that would have been great is just filming every other cast member in black and white training with him at some point in time. So we get a consistency that everyone had a different experience. Well, uh, going back to Midsummer, it's something I can appreciate. And we brought this up earlier was the character development in each character, even the minuscule ones. You get these two British characters. Except for Will Poulter. I don't know why he got cut out of the movies. Or not, I'm not saying he was cut out like through editing, but it's just he just disappears. He's and he do she guy and he goes. Well, they they lead you to believe that uh, he's a, another cult member. or One of the females is attracted to him and that something's going to spin off with that or he's going to get laid and they do the whole skin the fool thing. And he's your first setup guy to get rid of. But there is a good chunk of time where everyone else, two characters are fighting over what they're going to write their thesis on one's disappeared. Another's looking for that one. And you just kind of forget like, Hey, wasn't that kid from sling blade in this movie? And it's not him, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it, he just kind of disappears because I honestly don't think Ari Oster knew what to do with his character. We know we need to get him and get him skinned at some point, but I don't know how he's going to interact too much with the rest of this. So let's just, I'm going to go lay down cause I'm tired. Or he they, got too drunk or something, and just like, okay, so you just cut him out. He had to go film Toy Story 4, because that's Sid from Toy Story, is who that fucking guy is. 
Uh, they do state at one point, and it is weird now that you've brought it up, uh, right before the suicide, before the um, ritualistic 72-year-old suicide scene, they're at the dinner table, and he says, uh, I'm wiped, I gotta take a nap, and then is gone from the movie for a good portion. Like, yeah, like 20 minutes, he's gone, he just disappears. Yeah, and then he does the pee, uh, he the, he comes back, and, well, why didn't you wake me up for that? Pee's on the tree, and then is that's it. That's all they had him for. They had enough time for him to pee on this tree and to make some star. And it's not even that he's a specifically shitty douchebag character. He's your comic relief guy. But he's almost charming. He was one of the most natural characters in the group to me because well, everyone has that friend. With him specifically as an actor, I don't know why you cast him other than his face might be recognizable for like you know the, the leather face scene that's coming later. Because he's a pretty significant actor at this point in history because he was in... Uh, we are the Millers, which no one saw. Um, he was in Maze Runner. I didn't see any of that, but he was in. Um, oh, you know what? Snatch that Black Mirror. I uh, knew I'd seen him in something outside of Toy Story, and I, I've weirdly seen the Blade Runner movies. Uh, not Blade Runner movies, the Maze Runner movies. That is the little kid from. Uh, it's he is a major stream actor, and I think maybe that is the selling point. That let's get a British guy to play the, the token American. And that, I guess that's the really firm thing is that he is the token American he's guest the star. Like he's the actual name star that like out of all these people that are in this movie that you might've seen in another movie and he's barely in it. It's weird. Well, this I guess might be upsetting for some audience members to learn, but if you want to know what the rest of the world thinks of Americans, that character pretty much is us to the rest of the world. The very annoying douchebag. And he has this like massive pin cloud vape that he is displaying everywhere. Just then it's what I love about that is it's taken smoking and it's given it a different connotation that in a movie you usually have a character smoking cigarettes they're cool they're wearing a suit they're a bad guy or a, a card player it always adds some air of mystery to somebody smoking a filterless cigarette and now that you've got a tool like the vape you can instantly display oh this guy's a douchebag because he's got a pompadour and a vape he's some sort of hipster it, it just is a very cool tool that you can use kind of like cell phones a few years ago when the flip phones were really getting popular in the uh pop out blackberries with the bejewels and bedazzles all over them. You could show a character with that. And it's funny you bring that up because throughout the film, every time he like pulled a hit off that vape, I was, it made me a little bit nervous because I didn't know how the cult would react to him. Just, you know, blasting fucking smoke clouds everywhere and stuff. I figured they might, you never know. You never know what, what they're like about at this point. So is, are they just going to come up and be severely offended by it? Not until he pisses on a tree, but, you know, you get the idea. Well, and that, too, is just showing the development of these people that they might live out in the country and they're very off from society, but they're not rude. They're not. You hear cult and you're thinking Rosemary's baby. You're thinking black robes and Satan and violence. And they're just kind of a nice commune. Pagans. Yeah, they're they, they're they just worship, pagans, basically. Yeah. And in all truth and honesty, they just worship the old gods and reading a lot of these uh, critical reviews about the movie. And I think where I'm questioning people's integrity is are people so afraid of things that are non Judaic Christian that they have to instantly insult it with being evil and put a label on it? Are you afraid yes. of it? I understand xenophobia and I understand you being afraid, but how simple minded and ridiculous and childlike of you to not get past that concept. Well, they're they're sacrificing people. Well, what about Abraham and 
what about that guy, Cain, that killed his brother? And that one time that God said, we should probably just kill all the babies. Let's kill all the babies. Let's do that. Flood the world. Let's flood the world and kill everybody. Come the fuck on. We probably don't need to get too heavy on this subject. This no, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm liable to go off. So, But you get the general gist of yes. being small-minded. So if, if by any chance you've made it to the end of this and you're a hardcore Christian and you've not seen Midsummer. Don't let any of that ruin it for you. <laughs> Have an open mind, please. Very much so. Have an open mind. But overall, I think the movie is uh, its still a bit of a marvel that somebody would give him the, the money and the amount of screens this movie is on that they like a 24 is backing this attempt at like making a film. I know he has some clout with hereditary, but Seriously, for them to make that many prints of this very odd, non-basic horror film is kind of impressive. Because, like, we've been talking about the daylight thing that you do not naturally associate with a horror film. Every trailer I saw of that, I'm like, ooh, it's looking pretty bright, and that is going to be hard to pull off. And I think Ari Aster actually managed to pull off most of the daylight horror, because daylight horror is not easy. It's very difficult to do, actually, just to have all of your horror take place in such broad strokes of light because things start to look cheap. Um, acting starts to look bad and it's hard to hide anything. So he did succeed in that for the most part. When your first movie has such an amazing cast, I mean, Gabriel Byrne and Tony Collette for your first feature is pretty astounding. It's hard to drop the ball massively i think a studio no matter what's going to have a net under you to try and make things a little bit easier but to me it seems like uh, an individual has stepped out on their own and displayed something just very different and very unique with hereditary and trying to keep in that same vein as an artist and a growing creator and curator of art i think the direction that midsummer moved into despite having just just some absent Plot I'm interested things. in seeing what he's seeing doing gonna do next. Yeah. I'm I very mean, interested. This direction and how Midsummer has turned out and you know, despite our inconsistencies with it or whatever you want to call them, it's just it's mesmerizing now to know, just like um Panos Cosmatos, the uh, Jeremy Solnier and now Ari, that there are these guys out there making Robert Eggers. Yeah, Robert Edgars, they're making sophisticated grindhouse 42nd Street movies that and this was a big thing. The movie goes, you know, to credits and I'm sitting there and it hits me, man. I saw this in a theater. <laughs> I saw this movie in a theater wild. And that's so nice and refreshing that we're getting this. I might have brought this up on a previous episode and I'm not the first person to or like originate this idea. But at a certain point exploitation films became blockbusters and blockbusters became exploitation films because in the sixties and seventies, your blockbusters had Paul Newman in them and they were very thought out dramatic pieces. And now like, what do you go to the, uh, the theater to see, you go to see superheroes, you go to see, um, a garbage B movie, like because sci-fi movies were all B movies in the fifties and sixties. And now the most major things are sci-fi movies, and now the most major horror things are like weird drama pieces. In nineteen seventy-eight to nineteen eighty-five or so, or from nineteen seventy to two thousand or so, let's say, if 
a director came out and said, I'm going to make a movie about a hurricane flooding in Florida and uh, giant alligators are going to attack people. All right, we're going to give you like $50,000 for that. Go ahead and get it. Fred Olin Ray would have made that movie in the early 80s. And this Burt is Reynolds would have made that movie. <laughs> yeah, this would have been in a well, I mean, alligator exists itself, but this would have been a super cheap rubber monster movie that was pumped out by Canon. And now you've got something that what what's the guy that did the Hills Have Eyes remake is pinning this movie I'm talking about. Yeah, the uh, I can't remember Claw. I think it's called. I'm not. I can't. Remember I don't know. The, title. It, the trailer but, I mean, played before Midsummer, and it was one of those things of experiencing the trailer on such a big screen, just sighing the entire way through. And they also played the. Uh, yeah, they they showed that, and then they showed the It Chapter Two trailer, which I have no interest really in seeing it at all. I, I just don't give a shit about It. But that was a nice trailer. That was spooky. That showed a lot of. Uh, Packing both of those behind each other and then for a movie like Midsummer, it gives you hope for horror. But I just have no interest in seeing rubber monster movies blown up to $30 million budgets. Yeah, I mean, like literally we were in the 70s again when The Wicker Man just came out all over again. And <laughs> fucking Jaws is at the theater or whatever. Fucking Star Wars. It's I mean, we we're, we're right back where we used to be. It's just kind of amazing how cyclical everything is in cinema and culture in general. Uh, every 20 years, it goes back 10. Like the last, what, 10 years, people have been obsessed with the 1990s. I know oh, the 90s are so amazing. Living in the 90s must have been so great. Now it's uh, going back to the 80s. Everything looks like John Carpenter. Everything looks like a wham music video and that's what's stylistic we're gonna pump into the 70s soon probably get into the 60s and then it'll reset itself as the decade changes into the 20s it's just bizarre just fashion trends movies go backwards i'm surprised that the remake boom hasn't happened yet again i know the soskas just finished rabid and are putting their cronenberg remake out but in general what was it uh, 10, 15 years ago or so, everything, you know, with The Hills Have Eyes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all those movies started getting remade, and that happens in trends. And it, it looks like we're probably going to get back on a remake thing soon, but there who were knows? diminishing returns from the remakes at a certain point, and then they just started, even like like I, we talked about on another show, like the Thor Birch Terror Train remake became something completely different. And they changed the title. Um, what was the other one? That they oh like a house on sorority row just became sorority, sorority row. row. We're just gonna dump that on video because no one was going to see the remakes anymore because they pretty much remade all they could from the eighties. But now I think we're gonna get back into. I would not. This sounds like a crazy prediction, but it would not surprise me if you're not gonna get a, a reanimator remake soon. Uh, you're already getting. Um, God, there's what was the other one that's they're doing another. Oh, Hellraiser's getting a TV show, for God's sakes. The Lost Boys is getting a, a gender-swapped TV show. The 80s reboots are, are I think, going to be a, a mess. I mean, the Swamp Thing reboot was mismanaged, and that fell apart. And this is, again, the same problem 15 years ago. They did these remakes, and the fans just are are not taking it. You can't touch this. It can't be. It's Freddy Krueger's Robert England. It's got to be Robert England. It can't be. It's got to be Robert England. 
things change. Fans don't want it to change. If you want to sit and watch the same movie from 1981 over and over and over and over and over again, that's fine. I, I used to be really into remake. It used to bother me. And, you know, I love the thing. One of my favorite movies is a remake. What what does it matter? If, I get it being mad over taking something that was important to you as an individual and they're changing it. They're ruining something I loved. But you can still love the thing you loved and watch the remake or not. Well, Try not watching it. I didn't mind the Suspiria remake at all. But at the same time, I watched it and heard all these very positive reviews about it. And I was just like. Yeah, it was okay. It didn't. It does not have the same feel as the first one or the original because the original is just batshit insane. And then they made this very possession-like, slow-build art film out of it, like a a two-hour and twenty-minute like drama piece. And it's okay for what it is, but it's just it does not punt like have the same punch as the uh, the original film. And that's kind of gonna probably always be my problem with the remakes but i did enjoy it that's another four out of five so if you saw the suspiria remake and you enjoyed that you'll enjoy midsummer too i think they're about the same rating for me overall my issue with the suspiria remake really is is and i'll just say it blatantly i just don't give a shit when it was announced, I didn't give a shit. When it came out, I didn't give a shit. And every night going through Amazon, I just don't care. I love Suspiria. I love Dario Argento, and that's the problem. I've seen it. I, I just don't. I, it's I, really I, different. I will put it that I, well, way. And that even makes it worse for me because it's like, uh, it's I love a lot the, about dance and like the, fucking Berlin. Oh, I love the Omen remake, and I love it because it's the same thing. And it's it's like I've mentioned this before on previous episodes with the Cabin Fever remake. Uh, there's just something intriguing to me about shooting with the original shooting script and different people and, and getting different reactions and seeing how the same thing works, doing it over and over again and getting a different result. I think that's kind of fun. But I just... <sighs> Suspiria is Suspiria, and I don't, to me, feel there's any point or any way of doing it again or doing it differently. I understand the story. I get it. I do really love Tilda Swinton and love. Well, yeah, she plays two characters, so I really three. I didn't know there was three, but I I love seeing her um, pretty much do anything. And she's kind of like Toni Collette, one of those actresses that no matter what, the performance is just Stunning. Tony Collette did a Diablo Cody project called um was it the United States of Terra? I think that was the name of the show. Yeah. Horribly canceled before it got a good ending, which is you know, Showtime seems to do that pretty regularly to programs, Ash vs. the Evil Dead, and a bunch more throughout the last ten years. But her range and powers as an actress is just out of this earth. She's just an amazing human being to watch and seeing her in some of these intense projects and seeing a lot of these people and coming out and doing things like Hereditary, the United States of Terra, showing this immaculate range and, and power. You, uh, like it shows that people can act, that people still actually have talent. Have you seen the trailer for Knives Out? It's the new Ryan Johnson movie, the guy who made Brick, Looper and The Last Jedi, which I didn't think was that bad, but it looks Pretty fucking interesting. It looks like an Agatha Christie movie. The last done the last Star Wars way. movie that I saw was the Clone Fellas Attack yeah. of the Clone Boys. You're I way think. behind. Yeah, um, I don't but, have any attachment to Star Wars. I know we talk about it a lot on the show, and I've been asked a few times. You know, what's your beef with Star Wars? I don't have a beef. Again, like the Suspiria remake. Don't care. 
it wasn't a part of my childhood. It isn't a part of my adulthood. I've never had any interest in Ewoks. I think it looks cool, like Boba Fett. I'm with everybody else on this planet. Looks pretty cool. Darth Vader looks pretty cool. Don't care, though. I just don't. I'm sorry. Well, it's those things are just it's all about nostalgia. And I have no nostalgia for those things anymore. Just like Star Wars. You burnt it. If you well, had just left even... it with the at 1984, the Return of the Jedi, I'd be fine with Star Wars. But you burnt the fuck out of it. You it's... just kept making stuff. Just kind of the universe. I mean, it's I still to this day and I'll probably die reading the extended Dune series. I just am not a big space guy. There's just nothing that really pulls me in and intrigues me about. There's not much any story. In space. A good writer like Dune has at least interesting stuff to start with and different sort of ideas. Star Wars is a space opera with people with swords. And there's like only so far you can take it because no one wants you to change anything. No one wants you to do anything different than's been done before, so it's played out. Who cares about the Jedi? They're a bunch of like non-sex monks with fucking swords, and that's what you want to emulate. Oh, I got mad. That's where my boredom comes in with the problem. You know, like I say, I don't like space movies, but my probable favorite movie I'll ever say is Aliens, and it's a space movie. But it doesn't have anything. That's a Vietnam War movie. It has nothing it's to just do an with action space. film. Yeah, they are briefly in space in that movie. A good chunk and point of Star Wars is space travel and galaxies and aliens and spaceships and all the different types of things in space. And it's cool. It's fine. I love that people love something. That's I'm not trying to shit on that aspect of it. I just, man, I don't care. I just I well, try to at, care and I don't. Look at everything past aliens. It's pretty much all garbage because you can't take that story very far. Because it's about space bugs. It's space bugs are trying to kill us. Okay, let's kill the space bugs. And every movie since that one, they have tried to like explain what these space bugs well, here's are. Here's the problem with the fucking alien series. It's not explaining what the aliens are. It's this whole and this is the problem with The Walking Dead, the problem with everything. You know it would be scarier. If we made it about people fucking each other over and the aliens aren't the threat anymore, let's make it about a company. That's scary, right? No, the alien was fucking scary. The alien that pops out of your chest, that thing, that was scary. Two guys in a suit arguing over percentages isn't scary. That's my reality. Well, I mean, they've just recently, like, onto some more James Cameron stuff, they just recently made another Terminator movie. I've seen the trailer. It looks boring as shit. And I don't understand why they haven't just made what the the movie that everybody is wanting to be fights. Robot yes, they fights. literally just want to go into the future, and you know, like when you see the Terminators walking in on the skulls, that's what the people beginning, want to see. Yeah, okay. What the perfect Terminator movie should be is when A you're watching with robots. Yeah, when you're watching Terminator 2 Judgment Day and they do that scene at the beginning of General John Connor with the big scar on his face standing on the mound and all the robots fighting and the hunter killers flying over shooting lasers, 90 minutes of that. 90 minutes of that and they came really close with the Christian Bale movie and for all intents they and purposes. They fucked it up because yeah, they the, didn't have exoskeletons just running around. That's what people want. <laughs> Like, you got so close. You went out into the desert. You made it look like everything was nuked. You made everyone really angry. And then you didn't give me the robots. The movie is about robots. Just give me the robots. It became a Transformers movie. It became giant robots that I can't tell what they even look like doing CGI shit. And what people, they don't want questions of 
humanity inside of a robot I want to see people kill the robots. They just want a war with the fucking robots. Give them a war with the robots. It's just the same thing with a lot of these other reboots, like Aliens. Just give them a war with the fucking, like, have 10,000 fucking xenomorphs coming out of an army. You can afford to do it now. Just do that. Why are you trying to explain the nature of God through aliens? A robot created them. What? Did you just just read Friedrich Nietzsche for the very first time and decided to write a movie about it in your late 70s? Get the fuck out of here. Stop it. Go just. Give them a war. Same thing with Aliens versus Predator. Stop giving me a plot. Give me a war. That's all well, they want to see. Two, you consistently have people complaining, and it's that never helps the industry and that never helps the movie, but it's like, man, Arnold Schwarzenegger's old. If Okay, we can manage to take Peter Cushing and put him in a new Star Wars movie. Why can't we take Arnold's face and put it on whatever? With computers, in Internet. In well, Genesis. They, they did well. They did it too at the very end of Salvation. That all the T eight hundred they used a body double and somebody's face over top of it. But why do we have to consistently keep writing Schwarzenegger into things? He's older. He's not the Terminator anymore. He's the draw, even though he hasn't been a box office draw in twenty years. And that's the problem that we're focusing on Schwarzenegger being the draw for the new Terminator movie instead of coming up with a new Terminator movie. And this is where remakes come in with. Like, I, I, I've gotten to a point where I find it's very unoriginal to complain about a movie being a remake and using that as a complaint. I understand that you could have written something new, but a lot of the remakes that you see, some quality, some not, somebody has at least written something and tried to make the story a little bit different. So when we have this intellectual property with, like, Terminator, where is the fault and the harm with somebody writing a new story? Why can't we do a future Terminator story of the robots battling that's not John Connor? How well, about survivors get, in London or Paris or somewhere else? They get so sidetracked with this time travel aspect, and no one gives a fuck about the time travel. The least they important want part metal of metal skeletons. Movie. That is what they want to see. Uh, how much, okay, just even quickly bringing up what Terminator is about, how much of the first movie focuses on time travel? Because once the T-800 and Kyle Reese are on our plane of existence, the next 90 minutes are them here. There's no more time travel. T-2, no more time travel. <laughs> well, I mean, like, okay, a lot of people will disagree with me when I say that Terminator is the superior film out of all of them. A lot of people say, no, Terminator 2 is the best one. And like, really? I mean, okay. I love that movie when I was a Terminator kid. Terminator 2 is the most sentimental movie. Terminator is by far the best. I mean, there's, well, yeah. I got to agree. Because Terminator 2 is bloated. It's a, It runs long. It gets really sappy. It's about a Guns N' Roses video. Yeah, and it just it kind of goes on and on. And it's just it's like a lot of bloated action scenes and just a lot of bloated stuff about time travel and the fate of humanity and the nature of humanity. Fuck all that. It's a like the Terminator is a slasher film. It's a metal goddamn android trying to kill a lady. That's the entire plot. And how do we get away from him? And that is what's so entertaining. It's compact. It's like it's expertly edited and directed and just it tells an hour and a half story about get away from the robot. And then we get into a whole bunch of place setting bullshit by the second one about how do we keep the future? Who gives a shit? Well, the sentimentality no is what drags the series down, because that's what people wanted with the TV show, the Sarah uh, Connor Chronicles, what they've wanted. But uh, just continue the story. We have to know 
Well, let's focus on something outside of John and Sarah, because it looks like the last 20 years of John and Sarah Connor aren't selling. There's there's nothing really entertaining about it anymore. And the more you rewrite the characters, the less I care, because now what? So the TV show Genesis, all none of that happened. None of it's okay. Whatever. What's what's the point then? What's canon now in the Terminator universe is one, two and this new one. So, again, it's like doing what Halloween did, which I haven't seen nope. the new Halloween. I have no real. I'll get to it whenever it's I get right. to it. It's, it's just OK. Well, we're getting a sequel to that. So, I mean, I, again, I again don't see the point even sitting down and watching the new Halloween. Box because office returns is the point, Hank. Well, clearly there's unanswered questions if they're already jumping into a sequel. And nope. I, again, like old Arnie, I'm kind of tired of seeing Jamie Lee Curtis half act and scream and not give a shit for 90 minutes because it's the new Halloween. And tell me this is the, well, I haven't come back for a lot of them because, I mean, they, they got pretty bad, but this one's the good one. H2O, I know I said that was a return that I could be proud of, but this is the one I can really be proud of now. It's like, oh, fuck off with this. You just need a Michael Myers in a movie so you can put something on Halloween, make fucking $60 million opening weekend and yank it off screens in two weeks. Well, like I said, what that product is at this point. Well, like I said, with Terminator, I just I don't I fail to grasp why people can't take intellectual property and come up with something new on it. Like, again, this happened with Halloween three. They tried to make something different out of the series and it wasn't well received. But we can move on from Michael Myers. We can move on from the Jason Freddy slasher things. We don't have to continuously keep making like Terrifier sellable characters. We don't have to. What was there was the there was a really good anti slasher a couple years ago. The um, Behind the Mask Rise of Leslie Vernon, which they almost point fun at having to continuously Half make a, a characterization. Movie. Yeah, it's Half of a good movie. <laughs> It's not the best. The ending in the last 45 minutes is pretty stale, but just everything. No one goes out of their way to make uh, a slasher movie with balls anymore. It's, well, I want to figure out how to make seven of these because Saul did it. Scream did it. Everybody else did it. So I got to come up with a cool mask a and a cool gimmick. character. That's what I need. That's the only thing I need. It's gimmicks. Everybody wants a gimmick. Everybody wants to run with some backstory and some crazy five hour thing about where the killer is inside of his own head because he was hurt when he was six years old. And that's not what makes things scary. You know, even when we did the Jason debate, our biggest problem with the series in total is as it progresses, is the characterization of Jason just becomes absolutely ludicrous and just stupid. It becomes stupid and pointless to an already stupid and pointless character that technically doesn't exist and is only created for the sake of selling more popcorn and seats. Still, that's all people want. 30 years ago, that's what people wanted, and they don't get the the hint. You're, what you like will burn out. People that loved Saw, it's done. It's got. A, they're going to do a remake with Sam Jackson. That sounds awful. Yeah, because you, the fan, drove it into the fucking dirt, begging for more consistently. Now it's played out. Nobody gives a shit. Yep, and that's how most things are. Like I said, like art became horror, and horror became art. <laughs> what do you think about that as a headline, though? Chris Rock remaking Saw, starring Samuel L. Jackson. I didn't make that up. I know it's a, it's a gimmick sort of thing, and we're going to push it in a different direction, which will probably be solve about, the black guys. Well, I'd say it'll be a percentage of that, but not fully. I mean, I think Chris Rock is capable, I, but I also think it's going to be 
it's going to be tweaked. It's going to be a lot less kind of nasty and it's going to be a hell of a lot more about twists and all that stuff, which whatever. I mean, that last was just jigsaw. It tanked at the box office. It's a dead part property. If he can revive it, I don't, whatever. I probably won't. I'll, what the fuck am I talking about? I'll watch it when it comes out on video or whatever, because I'm a whore for this shit. But whatever. I mean, you don't have to watch it if you don't want to. That's what this show is about. It's finding nuggets of bullshit to go, hey, hey, you need to see this thing because this thing is worth it. Like you need to see Mandy. It's worth it. You need to see Hereditary because it's worth it. You need to see the witch and it's the rest it. of it. Who cares? Oh, well, you know, you I just tell you not to see it if it's not worth it at this point. Well, you brought up a good fact about eventually seeing everything. And uh, like I brought up not giving a shit about the Suspiria remake. I'll get to it. There are just more important things on my slate of watching that I want to get to before I get to that. Like Putney Swope. I've been stuck on that. Um, Criterion's doing a sale right now. So I've just kind of dumped. I, I bought In Cold Blood the other day because it was on sale for 15 bucks. Did I need it? No, but it's got Scott I'm Wilson in, in it. house right now. I'm in oh, your house. Me. Oh, man. I guess we're going to have to come back and do a whole fun-filled David Lynch thing. And, yeah, we're uh, just bitching at this point. Yeah. So I guess this is it. I guess we got a good, good, mildly short review out. We talked about something current and new for you. Still the, two hours. <laughs> still uh, two hours, <laughs> The loving audience got some new, fresh content out of us. Episode two of Death by DVD. We will be back week by week as we were we're returning to our weekly format. We'll have the greatest hits of Death by DVD coming soon. When is uh, when are episodes actually going to be like regularly coming out? Is it like every Thursday? Is that what we agreed on or? Uh, for for right now, I think sticking to every Thursday. I think you guys, the audience, enjoyed that. And then Joe Bob coming back, you'll have Death by DVD to listen to before Joe Bob. Yeah, and you'll probably, as this progresses, you'll get some more random shows throughout the weeks, too. But the main key Death by DVD episode should be out every Thursday. Yeah, we'll be working on solo shows, our other segmented specialty shows. We've got this new one, The Greatest Hits of Death by DVD, where we will be, and this, this is the next episode, we'll be discussing what we think are, you know, the, a list of the greatest movies of all time, essentially. Our our greatest hits are, you need to see these no matter what movies, and we're going to, I don't know, I think the first episode that we've got planned is really fun. I'm looking forward to getting into a lot of that and, and seeing how that one turns out. And then afterwards, like I said, solo shows, specialty shows. We'll try and keep you as informed as possible. If you check the website, uh, we'll be keeping that updated week to week with what's going on. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You should be able to find something. You can email us at deathbydvdofficial at gmail.com. It's also on our website. Everything's on our website, deathbydvd.transistor.fm. You can find it all there and more. I'm done. I got nothing else. All right, America. I burnt my candle. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. Don't go to Sweden. Good night. Take it easy.
the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem.